okay? So if you're in Luke 15, it starts in verse number 11. I'll read it pretty quickly here because we have read it several times, but just to get our, our bearings on the story, and then we'll, we'll come uh, from where we were last week and then just, just race through and finish it off, okay? He said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless And When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. He said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The great picture of the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son is what? I'll start you with a question, Ray, and we can answer out loud. What is, what is the theme of these three parables? We've been talking about it every week for the last three weeks. What is the big theme of the three parables? Be louder than you were in Sunday school for Derek. Come on now. Okay, salvation for what was lost, and there's a, there's a spin on that part, Sherry, that is a little further. Go ahead, Pete. Okay, you've told us about the parable. Now, what's the theme of the three? The, the shepherd, the coin, and the sons. What's the theme of all three? What, what's the overriding theme? It starts with an R and sounds a lot like the word rejoicing. Okay, yeah, it's the celebration. It's the joy that God has when someone who is lost is found. The focus on all three is the joy of the one who has found what was lost. And the shepherd and the woman and the father all represent the seeking God. Remember, we've told you before that we, don't believe, we, we do believe in seeker-sensitive churches, but we believe that God is the seeker, right? You, you have a seeker-sensitive church down the road thinking that there's all these people out there somehow seeking God when the Bible says no one is seeking God and no one has sought him at any time. All are unrighteous. So, so really what they're doing is advertising a service for no one out there, right? They're, 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 creating a, they're creating an atmosphere for people that don't exist because we understand that God must draw the lost one to himself. We talked about a little bit in Sunday school this morning that all of salvation is the gift of God. When you think about one of the 
very familiar verses of Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. You think about that little word, it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. And you ask yourself the question, well, what is the it? The it refers back to all three things. For by grace, that's a gift. You have been saved. That's a gift. By faith, that's a gift. All of salvation has been given to you by the sovereign choice of God. And that's why we rejoice in him today. There's, there's no one here patting themselves on the back saying, yeah, I was wise enough to figure out how to be saved. God is the one who drew you. And then when he does draw you, what, he's, what Jesus is saying in these three parables is that God has great joy when he does find us. He delights over us. I'm going to show you a verse in just a minute. Here's some reminders about what we've talked about before, just to, just to slide into today. Remember that the, the passage, Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees who are antagonistic towards Jesus. For what reason? Let's give you another chance. What reason is, are the Pharisees and scribes antagonistic towards Jesus? This is, a, this is a kickball right down the middle. What is it? Because he's doing what? What is Jesus doing here? This is like my ninth and 10th grade Bible class right now. Come on. Why are they upset with Christ? He's... <laughs> I can't hear anything, but it, I just hear a lot of mumbling. Because he's receiving these sinful people. Look at Luke 15, 1 and 2. He's upset because they are, this man receives sinners and eats with them. In Luke 5, they make the same assumption. They are angry because Jesus is associating with people who the Pharisees and scribes deem as unworthy. Their self-righteous attitudes has led them to believe that there are certain people that are unworthy of the grace and love of God, and only people that merit it are them who do the right things. So there are people that merit salvation and people that don't in their mind, and they are the ones who merit it, and they look down on the ones who they believe don't. Remember last week we said there are two types of people who are separated from God. All of us are separated from God. Some are separated overtly, and some are separated covertly. Right, there are people who just live an indulgent, immoral lifestyle, and then there are people who are close to God, sitting in the pews at church, and are still separated from God, but their sins are private. They, for whatever reason, their reputation, or just, they, they call themselves moral people, and they hide those things. Other people just go out, and, but both are separated from God. The Pharisees were part of that kind of covert separation. Now remember, in the Lost Son's parable, each of the individuals represent something for us. The younger son represents true repentance. The father represents rejoicing over salvation. And the older son represents resentment. You know, the, the idea that he resents the fact that the younger son was even saved. Last week we talked about the younger son and his decision to demand from his father his inheritance. Basically to say to his father, you know, I wish you were dead. I want your money now. And then he goes out and indulges himself uh, and, and lives this immoral lifestyle, squanders all the money, but then comes the decision to come back to the father, and we kind of left it there. But the son is a representation of what true repentance looks like. Repentance is a major topic for Luke, a major topic of the Gospels, but a neglected aspect in preaching and teaching today. I can just about promise and guarantee you that if we went to some of these so-called seeker-sensitive churches who are building a crowd based on either a prosperity gospel or a kind of a non-judgmental, want-to-make-you-feel-good gospel, you are not hearing anything about repentance. And we've talked about this a lot, but for one more time, just for the sake of those of you who may not have given your lives to Christ yet, 
Salvation is not just mentally agreeing with certain facts. You just mentioned that in Sunday school this morning. Even the demons believe and tremble. As if we could put a list of facts on a piece of paper and we say, yes, I agree to these facts, that does not save a person. Salvation comes when we truly repent. It involves a turning and a trusting. In Luke 3, verse 3, John the Baptist comes preaching repentance. Luke 3, verse 8, he demands that those who are coming to listen to him bear fruit that demonstrate repentance. Luke 5, 32, Jesus says, I'm not here to call righteous people. I'm here to call sinners to repentance. A main thrust in Luke 13, 3 was this, unless you repent, you will all perish. The only way to avoid eternal condemnation is to repent of your sin. In fact, in Luke 24, 47, when Jesus sends out the followers to preach the gospel, he says, I want you to preach and claim, proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So one more time on this, what is repentance? Because if you don't have repentance right, you don't have salvation. I don't care what prayer you prayed. I don't care what pastor signed your Bible. I don't care what memory you have at camp or Awana or something as a child. If you haven't truly repented, you are separated still from God. Here's what true repentance is. There are three aspects to it. There is repentance in our minds. There is a mental, what I would call an acknowledgement of our sin. There, there is the idea that, that I agree with what God says about my sin. I confess myself to be a sinner. There, there, is, there, is, there is no excusing it. There is no uh, rationalizing it. There is, a, there is just a statement mentally of, yes, I have sinned. That's part of repentance, is acknowledging that you're a sinner. And we've talked about this. When you talk to people about salvation, we'll often say, well, do you believe you're a sinner? I say, yeah. And they might say, yeah, everybody does bad things. You get the kind of a warning flag there, kind of a warning flag, because they are kind of basing it on, you know, well, this is just kind of cultural, this is just kind of universal, and we're all kind of in the same boat. They do mentally agree, but they haven't followed through with the next two steps of repentance. There is an emotional repentance, right? If mental repentance is acknowledgement of our sin, then emotional repentance is anguishing over our sin. A true sorrow Blessed are those who mourn. A weeping, not that we have to cry tears when we repent, as if, as if crying somehow proves that we are truly repentant. But there is an agony over our sin. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Paul talks about the difference between what is a godly sorrow and what is a worldly sorrow. And we've mentioned this a couple times, but just to slam it home for you. A worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry for what this sin has done to me. A godly sorrow says, I'm sorry for what this sin has done to God, right? A lot of people can be sorry because they were caught up in some sin and now their reputation is ruined, they lost a job, they lost a wife, they lost respect, and they feel bad about that. That type of sorrow doesn't produce repentance. It is only when we recognize that our sin has offended a holy God. You, ever, you know, you ever, I, I think about this a lot, but you ever... Are, are driving and someone if someone is angry with you for some reason and they give you either a fist or worse as they're driving by and they demonstrate they're upset with you that in a sense is what every single human being has done to god with their sin like we are angry with god we don't want any part of him and so we sin well we have to recognize that and and emotionally repent of it sorrow for it even that is not enough 
We must then have a volitional repentance, which means we change our will. We align ourselves with God instead of our sin. We turn from our sin and turn to God. A person who is unwilling to do that is unable to be saved. I don't think I could say it more clearly than that. It doesn't matter if you acknowledge your sin and you're really truly sorry about it, if you continue to live in it, and 1 John uses words like practice, walk, habit, right? It's, it's not that we don't sin every once in a while, but it's a continual living in that sin that proves we truly haven't repented. Now, the younger son does that. Remember, we talked about this last week. Look at the two things that he does to demonstrate that he has truly repented. In verse 18... Excuse me, end of verse 17, he says, I perish. That's a word that means I am lost. It's the same as the other words in the passage that talk about being lost. And remember the kind of the condemnation that comes from it. And then he says in verse 18, I will go and I will say, I have sinned. So the two things he says are, I perish and I have sinned. And what we said last week, well, this is what true repentance is. You have to have an honest appraisal of yourself and then a humble admission of your sin. You have to honestly appraise who you are. Honestly appraise who you are. Right? We, we joked about this before, like when a guy goes into the antique road show and it's, it's so fun when they pull out the pistols and put them on the table and says, my grandfather bought these from Wyatt Earp and I know they're real and they're worth millions of dollars and he's got this real, and then the guy says, oh, I'm sorry, if my honest appraisal is that these are cap guns out of a Cracker Jack box or something, right? They're, they're totally phony. And, and so he looks and gives an honest appraisal. And here's the difference sometimes, because even within the last couple weeks, within our congregation, I've said some of these things, like about how you can't be a good person and how you, how you must turn from your sin. And, and, and you still will not make that honest appraisal of what you really are and who you really are before the Lord. Then you have not repented. You kind of still say, well, yeah, but I am pretty good. He also humbly admits his, his sin and his contrite. That is what true repentance is. I don't know I, how much further I can urge you in this way to repent and turn to Christ. Now, in the rest of the parable, we want to examine the two other people. Last week, we looked at the younger son. This morning, I'd like to look at the father and then the older son, and then we'll be on to Luke 16 next time. When we think about the type of responses, this is where we ended, right, in verse number 19, 20, when he came to his father, we kind of said, yeah, the father receives him, but we didn't start talking about that yet. When we think about the types of responses from the father, does the response only please us because we're super familiar with the story, right? We, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are conditioned to understand that this, how the, this is how the story ends. But the audience... The Pharisees and the scribes would be expecting a, a much different response, right? And probably approve of the younger son's approach. What the younger son is saying is, I'm going to go back and work for it and earn my way kind of back into the father's family, even if I have to be a servant to do so. And the Pharisees are saying, finally, something is going right in this story. Because they were already upset with the son for his disgracing of the father, and they're upset with the father because the father was seen as weak. He should have he at least slapped the son across the mouth. Here are perhaps a couple of responses that we would expect from the father. I'll give you two, and they're, they're both not what happened, but this is kind of what we expect and what the world thinks sometimes when they come to God. First of all, we could have expected the father to say, 
listen, you're going to have to work for this and attempt to earn my favor. You're going to have to work for this and attempt to earn my favor. Even when people recognize and admit their sin, the process towards their coming unto Christ can be like a hazard of continually taking the wrong path. Think about it this way, okay? So a person comes face to face with the knowledge that they are a sinner, right? They, maybe they've, they recognize that, but in the course of giving them the gospel, you might say, do you recognize you're a sinner? And they, they feel the weight of that. Now there's two different ways they could go, right? They could acknowledge the offense that it is before God, or they could kind of say, they could rationalize, excuse it, say, you know what, I'm not that bad. You know, I've never killed anybody. And a lot of people go that way. Well, we all have sinned. And so they can minimize the gravity of their sin. That would be a wrong path to take. But let's say they do understand the gravity of their sin, and they feel the weight of it, and they understand passages like Romans 6.23 that says the wages of sin is death, that all are under condemnation, that all of us stand guilty before God, and they feel the weight of that, and they feel the need to do something to assuage the wrath of God. So now they're at another point of decision, right? I've got to assuage that wrath. Like, I recognize I'm a sinner, and I've taken the right steps towards understanding that God is angry with that sin and has the right, and, and his holy wrath will come pouring down on me. So what am I going to do to stop that? Another, another turning point where they could go wrong. I'm going to work for it. You know, I recognize what you're telling me is that I'm, I'm sinful, but from this point on, I'm going to do better. I'm going to work harder, and I'm going to attempt to, to have my good deeds outshine all the things that I've done that are wrong. And they could take another wrong step, right? They could take, and that's what, that's what the father could have said to the son. Work for this. In fact, that's kind of what the, the son was initiating. Romans 3 verse 20 says, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified. 2 Timothy 1.9 says he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our own works. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 says he saves us not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So many in our world and in our culture and even people that I've talked to believe that God's wrath can be minimized or taken away and his forgiveness merited by some good deeds. Isn't that astonishing to think that, that somehow God would look down upon us and say, wow, they... They're, they're really doing a good job. They now merit my forgiveness. It's nonsense. Okay? Scripture categorically denies that. Um, there are people who will believe they, ex they are accepted by, uh, by God for doing good. They are eternally mistaken. Okay? And this is what 95% of the world believes, that good people go to heaven. And it's absolute nonsense. And Derek and I have even talked to people in the last couple of weeks that continue to hold to that hope that I'm a good person. And for some reason, the blinders, by their own sin and by Satan himself, they cannot see that truth. I hope that God illumines that truth to you should you not be saved. There is no one good, not even one. Remember when the, the man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what shall I do to be saved? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is only one good, and that is God. There are no good people. There are only sinners, rebellious reprobates, who deserve God's holy judgment. And to think that some good deeds will somehow merit his approval. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us all our righteous deeds are like what? Filthy rags before him. 
There, there, there are no good things we can do to overcome God's judgment. Second um, wrong response that could have happened here that, 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 that did not happen is the father could even refuse to see the son or maybe give him a trial period or even go as far as Deuteronomy 21 states and stone his son. Under the law, they could stone a rebellious child. And I bet you the Pharisees and scribes were cheering for that response. We've talked about that. Many have a wrong idea about God, whether and, and, and they tilt to these two sides. Either they believe their good works can overcome their bad, or they believe their bad works are so bad that God will do what? Well, refuse to even receive or accept them. Like, you don't know, I mean, I've heard these things. These, these are not straw men. These are actual people who have said, you don't know what I have done. God could never forgive someone like me. So it's, it's either an underestimation of their sin or an overest, or I guess an underestimation of God's grace. Right? They, they either think their sin isn't that bad or God isn't that good. That somehow my sin cannot be forgiven. And those are two wrong theories that Satan presents to the world to keep them from trusting in Christ. Many believe that God is only a vengeful God waiting to zap them for every wrong thing that they do. They fear God in a wrong way. They feel they will not be accepted. But the story expresses to us the loving responses of God when a sinner repents. The son comes and can barely get his speech out when the father already starts to celebrate. Remember, the, the truth of all three parables is God's joy over a repentant sinner. God's joy. I've said this a couple times in the last couple weeks. I say it one more time. God is not a reluctant redeemer. That is good news for us. God is not a reluctant redeemer. He is eager to forgive. He delights in forgiveness. Listen to these verses. Psalm 86, 5. You, O Lord, are good and forgiving. Isaiah 55, verse 7. Return to the Lord that he may have compassion on you and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then Micah 7, 18. He delights in steadfast love. God is not reluctantly giving away salvation as if it has to be pried out of his hand when we come to repent. He delights in showing mercy. Isn't that wonderful? There, there is no sin that puts you outside the reach of God's salvation. He is a generous, gracious, forgiving God. I would think that would merit an amen, but the, the idea that God stands ready to forgive the repentant sinner. Even in the story, we hear that. Look, let me point out a couple things. 1520, Luke 1520, seems to indicate that the Father is ready, is eager. He stands ready. Look at what he does here. Uh, he came to his Father, in verse 20, he was still a long way off. Okay, the Son was still far away when the Father saw him. That seems to indicate the Father is looking, scanning the horizon, hoping his son returns. His father saw him and look, felt compassion and runs. Many have talked about the, in, the, in the culture this would be an, a disgrace for a man to run. This didn't happen. He hiked up his robe or however he had to do it, tucked in his belt and took off running towards his rebellious son. And when he got to him, he embraced him. He kissed him. The speech is cut short. 
You are not going to work for your forgiveness. I give it to you fully, freely, graciously, abundantly. And he immediately starts a lavish celebration. He starts calling servants, clapping his hands, right? Come on, let's get the party started. I love the verse in Zephaniah 3.17, which indicates that the Lord is going to rejoice over his people with joy and singing as his people are a delight to him. Now, I want you to think about this. Who is it that God is rejoicing over? Who is it that God takes delight in? This is going to be a, a super soothing thought to you. God is not taking joy and delight in people that have worked really hard to gain his approval. Can you imagine if that was the case? Never knowing what final good deed would push us over the top to merit his grace, right? A constant state of worry and anxiety when we would do something wrong. Because now, maybe we've unmerited the favor of God, right? Kind of walking around our day being very careful not to have an evil thought or a wrong, uh, wrong word. And wondering, without any hope or security, does God love me? God has extended this love to someone who has basically said to him already, I wish you were dead, I want nothing to do with you, all I want is the good things that I can get from you, and I want to get out of your life, I want nothing to do with you. And God embraces that person when they repent of that mindset. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. He eagerly receives repentant sinner he uh, simply we acknowledge our sin and we turn from it true repentance guarantees by god's providential decree that he will accept us because of what christ has done he puts a robe on him he puts a ring on him he puts a shoe on him all of not a shoe but he puts two shoes on him Uh, all of these things signify reputation and honor if you think about genesis 41 42 When Joseph was exalted to his position, the Pharaoh gave him the same things. Sandals especially are a sign of sonship because it was only servants and slaves that walked around barefoot. The sign of these shoes would be a sign of dignity and honor. It's not just that the father says, all right, come on back. I guess I'll take you. It is is a over-the-top celebration. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime party. The fattened calf is killed. The friends are called. The feast is begun. The son would have been grateful, and all of us would be, wouldn't we, if God would just be merciful enough to prevent us from being eternally punished, right? If God would just keep us out of hell, we would be grateful for eternity, right? If we could serve as his slaves in heaven, we'd be overwhelmingly thankful. Right? He says, you are, this is Galatians 4, 7, you are no longer slaves, but you are a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of God. It is not that he makes us slaves, and that's what the son wanted. Come back, I can be one of your hired servants. He doesn't make us slaves, he makes us sons. That's why songwriters write songs with questions. How can it be? And can it be that I should gain? Why would he love me so? People throughout history have tried to articulate this kind of love, this unmerited favor that God gives, and not only the favor that says you are pardoned, but also you are celebrated, and I rejoice over you. That is all 
coming from the heart of a loving and gracious Father. That is good news for rebellious sinners. God's grace triumphs over all sin. He is eager. He is ready to forgive you and even embrace you and even honor you should you choose to repent. And so one final time, like 2 Corinthians 5 says, I urge you as if Christ himself were doing it, be reconciled to God. I mean, what are you waiting for if you're not a believer in Christ? Now, let's talk about the older brother for another 10 minutes here, okay? Look at the passage, what it tells us the older brother is doing. The party starts in verse 24. This, I, sometimes when you're studying the Bible, you ask yourself questions and you just kind of try to get to the bottom of things. But in verse 24, the party starts and they start it without the older brother. Isn't that weird? That's, that's weird to me. The party starts without him while he's out in the field working. The fact that he's out in the field is a metaphor for his separation from God. Remember, the, remember the, I said separation can happen overtly or covertly. Just because he's where he's supposed to be does not mean that he's not separated. Both these sinners are separated. And in fact, the greater danger is to the one who attempts to hide his sin through self-righteousness because they find it much harder to admit the gravity of their sin. In fact, a lot of self-righteous older brothers sit in churches today proud of themselves for what they've done, thinking they deserve the honor and forgiveness of God when in fact they are still separated from him. And they look out the windows of the church building, maybe, maybe just in, the, in their mind's eye, and they think about the culture, and they think about the society, and they think about the Romans' one depraved mind, and they think about these nasty individuals out there who are doing all kinds of immorality and think, those people are the ones who are in trouble without realizing that they themselves are in danger and perhaps greater danger because out there, so to speak, those people have an easy time admitting their sinfulness when in here, the older brothers who are self-righteous work to camouflage their wickedness instead of declaring themselves sinful, they say things like, I'm all set. I've heard that. Dozens of times. There are people in our own family that when asked, right, we've shared the gospel and we've said these things, and I can remember a specific instance when we were sitting in the car with this individual and we were, we were pleading with them about the gospel, don't worry about me, I'm all set, or I'll be fine, I'll be okay. I had a, a boss at a drugstore when I worked in Davison years and years ago. He was probably one of the one of the most kind individuals I knew. He's an unbeliever, shared the gospel with him. Same thing. Hey, I think I'll be okay. Can you imagine? Someone thinking about their eternal destiny and just thinking they're okay. That's because they are looking at their morality or their actions and they don't see any major sins from their position and they refuse to admit their own wickedness. Matthew 9, verse 12, Jesus announced to the, those who were listening, it is not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. In other words, those who admit they are unhealthy spiritually are the ones who will come to Christ. This older brother is separated from God and he is unwilling to repent. He hears the music and dancing of all the things in this chapter. Think about it. The shepherd, the woman, the younger brother, the father, the servants, the older brother... The older brother is the only one who's out of place. Everyone else is filled with joy. 
except for him. He's filled with anger, and he's smoldering with resentment. Why is he so upset? He's upset not only because his sinful brother has returned, and only because his father has accepted him, but because his father is actually celebrating this rebel. And he clearly represents the Pharisees of chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. The older son resists the love of his father, and he resents it when it's expressed to other people. The older son didn't want the father either. He just wanted the things from the father, and he went about, he went a different way about getting it, okay? Let's think about this. Both sons wanted what their father would give. The younger son just said, I hate you, I want you dead, give me what I deserve. The, the older son, he wants the things too, but his method of getting it is, I'm going to be the good son, and I'm going to marry it, and I'm going to deserve it. Different way of coming to the same conclusion. The older son thinks he is in the right. Let's read this again here, and we'll point out a couple things here just as we get ready to quit. Um, the older son was in the field. He came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. This is verse 26. He called one of the servants. I'm confused there as why he doesn't ask the father to, but again, maybe it's just kind of demonstrating the separation. Don't want to read too much into that, though. He asked him what these things meant. He said, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And so his father came out and entreated him. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The older son has a speech just like the younger son. You think back to the younger son's speech at the very, I'm talking about the, the, when, he, when he returns and he says, I will arise. To, he, he's practicing a speech. I can imagine that this son perhaps has referred to this speech in his mind on occasion. Here's his speech. Look, first of all, he starts with very disrespectful. You know, can you imagine if your son said to you while you're talking, hey, look. This is, not, this is not a term of respect. He hates this man. Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Here's what, here's what the, if we summarize these two speeches, here's what they would be. You have the younger son who is repentant, and you have the older son who is righteous. Okay? The younger son says, I have sinned, and there's no excuse, right? I have sinned, and there's no excuse. Even in his speech, and this is what true repentance looks like, even in his speech when he announces his sin, he doesn't go on to say, you know, but you were an overbearing father, and you kind of drove me to this, and I would have only done this if you would have been the nicer dad. No, he just says, I have sinned against heaven and against you. There is no excuse. I have sinned. I have sinned, and I have, I have no excuse. The older son says, I have served with no reward, right? I have sinned with no excuse. I have sinned and there's no excuse. I have served you and there's no reward. See what the, old, see what the older son is basing? It on, hey, I've done everything right. Where's the goat for my friends? And this is another indication of his hatred to the father. Even the party that he desires, he doesn't want his father being a part of it. Why didn't you ever kill a goat for me and my friends to have a party? In other words, provide me with something and you stay out of it, is what he's saying. And finally, and, and most clearly, 
He refuses to admit any wrongdoing. I have never disobeyed your command, verse 29. You know what that sounds like to me? Remember the guy who came to Christ? Hey, uh, tell me what I got to do to get eternal life. You got to keep all the commands. These things I have done from my youth, right? Remember I said about repentance? You have to acknowledge your sin. You have to anguish over it, and then you got to align yourself with God. Older son can't even get to the first step of acknowledging sinfulness. He is claiming that he deserves the Father's mercy because he has never done anything wrong. That's what he's saying. He exemplifies the two types of people. There are people in the world who are dependent on God to declare them righteous. And there are people who think that they themselves deserve God's favor through their own righteousness. There are two types of righteousness in the Bible. You need righteousness to be uh, connected with God, you can either have his righteousness, which comes by, starts with an F, faith, or you can have your righteousness, which comes by the law. And Paul, in Philippians 3, describes that type of righteousness in his own life when he says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, I was from the tribe of Benjamin, with, with, re with reference to the law, I was blameless. He's saying the exact same thing the older son is saying. I have never done anything wrong, but... I want to now count those righteous things as nothing, as dung, and instead I want to be found in him having a righteousness that is not my own, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what spurred on the whole Reformation. Romans 1.17, the righteous live by faith. There is not a merit system. And Paul kind of exemplifies the Pharisees who would not hear Jesus' message. And Paul himself only heard it because Jesus himself came to him on the road to Damascus and drew him to himself. The son is saying, I was a dutiful son, but you embraced the rebellious ones. But his duties only masked his inner rebellion. Look at the father's regard for the son. I, I wrote down five things, just five words from the passage that tells us of the tender compassion the Father has, even on this son. Right, the, fa the Father has compassion on all people. Look at what he does. I, I, just, I just start with it. First of all, he comes out. Verse 28, he comes out. Again, the Father is initiating the contact. The Father comes out, and he entreats him. He, he's speaking to him. That's the second thing. And then, he, and then the son gives his speech, and then he says to him in verse 31, now we continue the list, he says to him, son. That's a different word than all the other words for son in the passage. It's actually the word little child. Little child. It's a very tender term. Then he says, all that is mine is yours. Or he says, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. The potential for the same things the younger son is enjoying are all yours if you just ask for it. If you repent, and I will celebrate with you too. He is so mad, and the heart of the problem is this. He thought that righteousness was achieved by his obedience. And what you must recognize to be saved is that your righteousness is achieved by Christ's obedience. Most of the world thinks that approval with God is achieved through their own obedience. But the Bible is clear that our, that our righteousness and approval with God is achieved by Christ's obedience, his active obedience, his passive obedience. The fact that he fulfilled all scripture, 
They did everything his father commands. I only speak the things that please my father. There's no guile found in his mouth. No deceit. Never, never sinned. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, Hebrews 7.26. Hebrews 4.15 says he is tempted every way, yet without sin. He's like a lamb, precious, without blemish, completely pure, active obedience. And because of that act of obedience, he can go to the cross and be passively obedient, take the punishment that the Father had before the foundation of the world planned for him to take on behalf of rebellious sinners. And it's simply by turning from your sin, abandoning all hopes that you have and any righteousness that you have and trusting in Christ alone where you find forgiveness. We need, to, we need to watch out for the tendencies of an older brother in our life where we think things like this. We deserve salvation. Those people out there don't. That's a dangerous position to be in. The point of this whole passage for believers, most of our attention has been focused on people who are unbelievers, and again, we urge you, please repent. But for believers, here it is. We cannot say that our hearts are aligned with God unless we have the desire to share in his joy over repentant sinners, right? A Christian must love what God loves and hate what God hates. And in this whole chapter, for the last three weeks, we've been pointing out that God loves and delights in saving the lost. So you cannot sit there and say, and I cannot say, oh, I love the things God loves, and have no desire to involve or invest my life in reaching out to lost people. Claiming that somehow my joys are God's joys, and one of his greatest joys is delighting in seeking and saving the lost when I have no connection with unbelievers in my life, no desire to involve myself in the sharing of the gospel, won't even extend myself to a stranger or a family member or a friend in explaining to them what it means to come to Christ, just hoping that the church and the pastor will do that so we can kind of share in the joy of some family got saved or a person got baptized. We would be kind of a, an outlier, a spectator in that joy. Listen, be a participator in pursuing that very same joy that God participates in. Otherwise, you've you got to be, be very careful to say, well, you know, I'm right aligned with the truths of God if you're not doing anything to seek and save the lost. This is the mission that Christ gave the church. Five times at the end of every gospel, at the beginning of Acts, he commissions the church to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke 24, 47, for the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so many of us, not just us in this church, but in Christianity, can't even give the simple gospel message. Yet they want to stand and claim that they are rightly connected with God. We've got to be careful about that. And again, of course, I urge you to repent and find forgiveness if you've never done that. We have a good and gracious and loving and forgiving God. We should say hallelujah to that. Let's pray.